listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Amanda Page Young. I am a writer, director, and producer. Listeners might know me for Every Two Minutes, a short film about human trafficking. Lemons, a short film that I produced for director Simon Word Miller von Elg. Love Gwen, a short film that I wrote and directed about a woman who attempts to rescue her heroin addict sister. I also do behind-the-scenes photography and video, and I most recently worked on Carrie Underwood's Cry Pretty Toy 360. I'm currently an associate producer at Discovery. Amanda Page Young, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy that we get to talk this morning. I know. It's, um, it's something that's been on my mind for a long time, uh, ever since the day we met in Dozen's Bakery. Uh, I believe mm-hmm. that's where it was. We sat down and had a conversation there. That felt like um, it wasn't as satisfying as I wanted it to be frankly, because, because you were great, but I felt like I had to split time mm-hmm. between you and our other guests. Sure. And it was hard to just, it almost felt like it was a dating game almost. <laughs> um, right. Didn't have that kind of vibe where it's like, okay, who do I talk to now? And, and how do I, and then vice versa. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A bit of a speed dating round round from, from back in the day. I mean, I guess they still do speed dating somewhere in the world, but, uh, New yeah. York for sure. Um, how did I do? When we chatted in, uh, in the summer? Yeah. Like if you had to grade my speed dating, uh, abilities, um, in the context we were meeting, of course, which wasn't dating, but <laughs> We should clarify that you're married. Right, exactly. Yeah. Clarifying married. Not to um, me. Not, right, right. Yeah, that's yeah. another thing to clarify. So, but in the context that we were meeting, how do you think I did? I would say big charisma, big mm-hmm. charisma. Um, and I think you were, you know what, very gentlemanly. And I don't know if other gentlemen would give you um, that note. But uh, more, more gentlemanly than most in this age, as far as not only appearance of style and dress, but also in your manners. I mean, I think you held the door for us and you were meeting with three women just for context for the listeners. Um, so, yeah, whoever I don't know if it was your mama or whoever taught you your manners, but a for manners for sure. Um, and that goes a long way, especially in this industry, like. We meet people all the time. I mean, how many coffee sessions do you have per week, right? At least two, three, so like a lot on the week. But yeah, you're meeting people all the time. So I think anytime, if you have stand up manners that can help, um, you know, not only substantiate what you're saying you do as a profession, um, especially when you're meeting someone for the first time, but it, it just, it just helps with comfortability, I think. So that, that's something that stood out to me. That's huge. And I think I'm going to steal what you said and make that my new nickname, uh, big charisma. 
Big charisma. <laughs> yes, this is like my new nickname. I'm gonna I'm gonna run that by Nick and see what he thinks. And and you know I was raised with all girls similar to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have four sisters, is that right? I do. Yes. Wow. So tell me about that. Like it feels like in a household with five girls that you would all be vying for the attention and affection of your parents. So how was that like growing up and, and how did it complement or affect your decision to go into a film as a career? I think, um, let's see, I've never thought about that directly, but I guess I have thought about it directly because it, it all did come from my childhood and, um, Mainly, um, I started making movies, quote unquote, when I was about six. Um, my grandfather had an old video camera and, uh, I can actually remember the moment that I looked through the viewfinder and I saw that, um, if you point this thing that's on your shoulder, the camera in a direction, you have the ability to show others how you see things. And that just clicked with me as a six-year-old. And that was kind of all I wanted to do from that point forward. And um, I was very close with my sisters growing up, especially the one who's a bit older than me, two years older than me is Megan. And then Grace is three years younger than me. Um, And my cousins, who are all about our same age in that age range, and we all grew up in, you know, our towns were 15 minutes apart. We spent every Sunday at our, at our grandparents' house. Um, and from that age forward, me and my older cousin, Andrew, we would um, write scripts and all of us cousins would have a part in the script. And um, we, would, we would have our grandfather film them. And then eventually my grandfather taught me how to use the camera. And uh, when he got a new one, he gave me his old one when I was 13 and we just kept going and uh, making more and more little kids' movies. And then um, when we got into our teenage years, everybody else was kind of ready to be done with making movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Their priority. Uh, you know, that's the age when you're, you know, I remember my cousin who's a year older than me. She got a, a phone line in her room, uh, which in those days you didn't – That was that was quite – quite the thing. I mean, none of us in my house ever had a phone line in our room, but that's when, you know, everybody else is talking to boys on the phone and, um, you know, sports is a big thing. Basically everybody as teenagers has better things to do. (laughs) Um, but me, I still wanted to make movies. So I was still, um, using any camera I could get a hand on or writing scripts. Once there was, once there were no teenagers left who wanted to spend their Saturday making a movie, I would just write scripts. And then um, once we couldn't shoot anything anymore, because I couldn't coerce my cousins into doing these movies, <laughs> then that actually opened space for me to write bigger and bigger stories. Um, not that any of them, all of them I think are, I put them underneath a drawer in a dresser in my house back then. Uh, so they might still be there, but we're talking handwritten notebook pages of scripts, some of them 40 pages of notebook pages. I was, I've always loved, um, World War II and and anything like that. And this is, you know, kind of right after Saving Private had come, Saving Private Ryan had come out. And, um, so I have one set in Germany in World War II. I think that one's under that dresser. 
I have one where I imagined all of these um, country singers. I always liked country music of mm-hmm. who they were as kids. So kind of like that movie Now and Then of when the girls are all younger and then you see them as older. And I imagined if these country singers who I really liked were all friends together as kids. Um, so they're all they're all sitting under there. Um, but that was um, that was, I think, most importantly, how my my childhood shaped my career and. Um, and at one point, I mean, I don't know if you feel free to cut any of this out if it doesn't, if it doesn't matter. But at one no, point, no, 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 this is all good stuff. This is all the stuff we need. Yeah. At one point in the last year, my cousin, who's a little bit younger than me, he texted me and it was a full paragraph. And I, I hope I took a screenshot of it. But he said, you know, we all had dreams of, um, going into entertainment and um and he said you're the one who's who's actually doing it and who's actually putting the work in and making it a reality um and something about that uh was so encouraging to to hear um so that was that was important yeah it it, and that's what i want to go back to a little bit because it's um you picked up that video camera and by the way there have been so many people who started their love for film that way where a grandparent or a parent had a camera and and they were just gifted the camera or given full, you know, access to that camera and, you know, wanted to say something with it. Um, uh, Logan Christopher comes to mind. Chad McLaren Mm -hmm. comes to mind. There've been a lot of people in this podcast that have had their beginning that way. And Mm -hmm. so it's a powerful thing to be able to, let your kids use the tools that you have around the house and let their imagination sort of take a ride with it. That maybe yours, you know, your grandfather probably had it for a lot more pragmatic reasons, right? Like he probably had it to do home video, Oh yeah. but you pick it up and it's a movie camera and it's a, it's a, it's a sort of kaleidoscope of your imagination. Um, I'm curious though, how you knew, because you talked about writing scripts and, and putting family members and cousins in movies. How did you even know to do that? Um, w- was there something already there? Uh, was there someone in the family that was that had that dream but didn't quite get there or did get there? No, not so much. The biggest thing um, was that we uh, we all loved Are You Afraid of the Dark? I mean, shout out to anybody who remembers that show from Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. So our first films that we made as kids were basically copycats. I think the first one that we shot when I was six was um, a version of Sleepy Hollow, which to this day I still love that story. But we're not talking about the we're not talking about the Tim Burton Sleepy Hollow. This was before that came out. This was probably five years before that came out. We're talking about we copycatted um, the Are You Afraid of the Dark Sleepy Hollow, and it was a mess. And I think. And if, I mean, you can't, if you watch it, it looks like a home movie. It does not look like, it doesn't even look like kids were trying to make a movie. It just looks like kids playing in a basement. So after that, um, my grandfather said that he wouldn't do them for us anymore. He wouldn't shoot them for us anymore. He said, uh, he's actually passed away, but his exact words were, you must write a script and practice it. And then I'll shoot it. <laughs> So that's why we started writing the script. 
<laughs> so there wasn't anybody who was already doing it or any type of nobody was professionally related to this at all whatsoever. Um, but I guess somewhere my grandfather found out that <laughs> that films have scripts, and you know he was <laughs> <laughs> and he was always nice about it, but it was that that's where he set that boundary, if you will. <laughs> right. Right. But that's that's why we started writing scripts, and then we would practice them <clears throat> so yeah. that. Um, so that our cinematographer wouldn't leave us. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, though, like with that many siblings, did you just did you latch onto this because it gave you a way to stand out, a way to get a different type of attention um, from your parents and grandparents? Did it give you something that was singularly yours? Um, I would say maybe, but if so, only subconsciously, because it was definitely never, none of that was ever a conscious part of my decision-making for it. Mm. Um, but I, I did always like writing stories. Um, and even before I actually could not read until the second grade, which I don't know if people realize that that's quite late. Um, and I, I didn't really get it how you're supposed to read. I remember that I could read a word, but in my brain, I did not understand how words are put together into a sentence. And second grade, I would pretend to read. We would have 20 minutes of reading time in, in second grade. And I would sit there and pretend to read. And I thought I was fooling everybody. I thought, you know, everybody, <laughs> everybody. <laughs> reading too but really I'm just looking at words and having no clue how to put them together I'm you know looking at the pictures in the book and like clearly my teacher caught on and uh right <laughs> um, she she had me have a tutor for quite a long time um and then from that tutor somehow this sixth grader who was my tutor was the one who actually taught me to read which now looking wow. back pretty amazing because Absolutely. in days elementary school went up to sixth grade. Um, and so that's how I learned to read. But even before that, before I, uh, conquered this challenge of not being able to put words together in a sentence in writing, um, I would, apparently I would write stories on paper before I knew how to write any words. I was like four years old and I would show my mom, these, these papers that I had written of all these stories that I had apparently written. And of course, no one can read it and there are not any real words on there. But to me, it was real words. So it's more like, it, I hate, it's not as harsh as my parents had nothing to do with it. But, um, you know, I think my mom did encourage it though. And she would, um, she was really proud of me for having an interest like that. Um, if we fast forward to fourth grade, I won a young authors competition in school. Um, wow. So you went and, from not being able to read in second grade to winning in, in fourth grade. Yeah. And I was, um, we had moved when I was in third grade. And for some reason, when we moved, I became very, very shy for the next three years or so in school. So where were you living? We lived in a town called Damascus, Maryland when I was young. And mm -hmm. then we moved to Mount Airy, Maryland to a different school district, even though the towns are only about 15 minutes apart. And, um, 
And when we moved to Mount Airy and the new school was called Kemptown, um, I just had a difficulty making friends. I was very quiet, um, like unusually quiet. And I think that actually made it worse. Like, you know, kids don't necessarily want to befriend the, the quiet kid because it is odd, but that's, right. that's how I was coping with it. So eventually by fourth grade, this guidance counselor had encouraged me to like do something other than just get really good grades all the time and, and sit there and be quiet. Um, so that's, that's when I wrote this story and it won a young, a young author's award in the County. So my mom was very encouraging of that. Um, and she, um, yeah, but I was always just creating worlds on my own. I would often play alone in my room. I would take all of the dollhouses, anything that we had that was like a home and I would make it into a village with any characters that I had from, um, action figures and everything. Um, and I had this, these ongoing storylines with them, you know, almost like show running <laughs> as a, as a showrunner on a, on an episodic show. Um, right. so, I mean, that's, that's all I did with my time, whether it was writing stories or whether it was playing with action figures or making the movies with my cousins, it was all just different versions of stories. And you did become a very good student and maybe that was through that, that quiet or, maybe that childhood sort of disappointment of moving uh, and losing a friend or something like that. But whatever it is, you channeled it into being a good writer and, and a great student. You were able to go to Chapman college, which is not easy to get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you have to have like a 29 ACT, like just to apply. So uh, kudos yeah. to you there. But you. the thing is, is that's all the way across the country. So you really wanted to get away and reinvent yourself. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah. And it started, I actually went to undergrad for two years at Palm Beach Atlantic, my freshman and sophomore year. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really had very little guidance for college. My parents didn't go to college where the, my sisters and I are the classic case of first generation college students. So my parents, especially my mom really wanted us to go, but they did not have a plan financially or scholastically. It was very much up to us to figure it out, which, you know, a 17 year old can only do so much. Um, so I knew that I wanted to study film if I could. And, um, the first school that I went to was called Palm beach Atlantic, which, uh, is a Christian school and I grew up Catholic. So I thought, I haven't um, heard of Palm beach Atlantic. Where, where is that? It's down in West Palm Beach, Florida, and I loved the beach growing up. So I thought, oh, I'll go to school in Florida and be at the beach and study film. Um, <laughs> the classic dream, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I think at that time, maybe I was intimidated by something like NYU or, or something like Chapman. And, and to be clear, I actually had not heard of Chapman when I was 17 and applying to colleges. So I go to Palm Beach Atlantic, um, I get in a stupid amount of debt for that, and uh, I learn that Christian and Catholic are actually different, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And uh, which is great. All of these experiences were great. Up to that point, my family, we were, I think there's a certain kind of Catholic that doesn't hug because we grew up not hugging. So from the Christians, oh, oh. <laughs> what are those called? <laughs> what are the non-hugging Catholics called? <laughs> I think it's like a weird East Coast thing where like it's just you don't you don't show a lot of affection 
Uh, the COVID Catholics. Yeah. And so I learned how to hug at this Christian school in Florida because the Christians love <laughs> <love> to hug. <laughs> and now I love it, but I had to learn how to hug when I was 17. <laughs> um, so I do all that. And I, I had this very clear moment um, when I started my second year at that school that I was not supposed to be there. And I try to pay it. I try to give those feelings um, the utmost attention because I think if you don't, I think you deplete them. So all my life, if I've had a strong feeling about something, I go with it. Um, Like I said, because I'm afraid to lose that connection to whatever is greater than us because I think it is something greater that sometimes tells you you're going the wrong direction or or you need this, you need to, you know, uh, adjust your path a little bit. So I just had this feeling that despite the fact that I'd found all these friends who I really liked at Palm Beach Atlantic, that I was not supposed to be there. Um, so the best I could figure was that I needed to transfer. Um, so that's when I started looking into the, the big caliber film schools and a friend of mine knew someone who was going to Chapman and that's how I found out about it. And, uh, by then I had done very well my second year, um, at Palm Beach Atlantic because I knew I was transferring. So, um, I was able to get much better scholarships at Chapman when I went there and, um, got accepted into their film program for screenwriting. I love that. And uh, the thing I, I take away from all this is, is how cool and what a blessing it is to know your direction early to just yeah. be to, you know, so many kids go into college and say, you know what, I'm just going to, they really have to pick their major. They have to like, as if they're choosing from a bunch of different majors written down on paper and then put into a hat. Right. And I said, well, if this doesn't fit, then we'll always change. I always have the ability to change my major. But for those people who just know right away and knew going into it, it's, it, it makes life so much easier. Yeah. Um, so you go to Chapman, you graduate, you do well, uh, and you're off and running. And you've really only done this one thing, which is what fascinates me about you uh, in, in part. Um, and this was, uh, you graduated Chapman in 2000. And was it, did you start in nine and graduate in 10? I graduated, I started in 07 at Chapman and then I graduated in 2010. So got it. I spent three years at Chapman. So five years total undergrad. Got it. So with that 10 years of, of background, what would you say is the biggest challenge you've overcome so far as a filmmaker and, and how did you overcome it? Um, I've got a couple for you. So in, in the big sense, actually moving to LA has been the biggest challenge. So as you know, I spent almost 10 years in Nashville and mm-hmm. um, Nashville is just it, it means so much in, in my heart because I grew up there as a person, so to speak. And, and um, I just want to jump in. I'm, s- I'm sorry to interject, but I want to jump in because I don't think we clarified for the listeners. Chapman University uh, is in Orange County, California. Yes, it is. Got yep. it. All right, go ahead. Um, so after Chapman, I moved to Nashville for what I thought would be just a summer of living in Nashville, um, shooting video for a country singer who was doing uh, a small festival tour at that time. And what I found was that, um, I was able to sort of 
jump into production work and I call it gig hopping. Basically I would work on a job, meet other people in production from that job. And then they'd say, Hey, you want to come do this afterward? So I started gig hopping in Nashville and, um, PAing, doing behind the scenes camera work, um, associate producing. And I found that since I was getting work there, um, I decided to stay there. I had always intended to come back to the LA area after that summer. Mm -hmm. But, um, at that time, Nashville was much less expensive than LA. Um, and since I was getting work there and building my resume there, um, that's, that's why I stayed. Um, but I knew eventually I would want to get to a different market. Um, so this past year when I moved back to LA, I think that was one of the biggest challenges that I have overcome one, because Nashville is so lovely in so many ways. Um, and it's a very difficult place to leave when you are in a place that has that much love, that much community. Um, but also because I was now in my early thirties, um, moving had to be healthy for me financially, personally, and professionally. Mm-hmm. And I think that's different than when you're in your twenties. I think in your twenties, you don't realize how important <laughs> having all three of those things figured out is, uh, important for sustaining yourself as a person. So that right. made it, cool. but, um, alternatively, one of the biggest challenges I've had was, um, uh, there was a job that I really wanted that I interviewed for in November to be working for a showrunner. And the reason why I really wanted it, I would be associate, associate producing for a showrunner who does both, um, narrative and documentary. Um, and she's quite well established. She's done some big things. And I thought this is the perfect person that I can learn from, um, to move up into either episodic directing or show running eventually. Um, and the, you know, the interview went great. We spoke for an hour. Um, and then I found out that I did not get the job. So that challenge, um, of, of just sitting with that disappointment and figuring out, you know, how do you keep moving forward when you thought that that was one of the keys that you really needed Um, and I really sat with the disappointment for two, maybe three days. Um, not just sitting around depressed, but, uh, definitely, um, dealing with those emotions. And what helped me overcome it was that at the time I was subletting a place from a friend Mm -hmm. and I was with her roommate and she's a director and she, um, has done a couple of really great short films. Um, and she was up for some programs, some of the, um, directing diversity programs, which are very difficult to get into. Um, but also incredible for your career if you do get into them. And I knew that she was up for about three of them, a Disney one an NBC one and and another one. So she's doing great. Right. And so Mm -hmm. we're sitting talking and I'm telling her we're having a coffee and I'm telling her about my disappointment of, um, this job that I thought was going to be great. That, you know, it's going to allow me to get an apartment in LA and work for this showrunner who I really want to learn from. And then I, and I didn't get the job and I'm telling her about this. And, um, and then, you know, we're kind of sharing in, in the trials and tribulations of there's just so much disappointment in this industry. Right. And yeah. <laughs> 
it's funny because you, you start to get better at dealing with it over the years, but then sometimes, you know, even 10 years into your career, you still have this big disappointment. And then, um, after a couple hours of kind of talking about everything under the sun in the entertainment industry and, uh, you know, her time at Sundance, her being up for these big directing programs, her getting a manager. So she's doing great. And she goes, okay, well, I'm going to get going. Cause I got to go deliver for Postmates. And <laughs> I thought, okay, copy that. And that's that in a, in an odd way, it helps me like snap out of my disappointment because the truth about this industry is it is very hard for everyone, but the more every day, the more you can take care of yourself in those three areas that I spoke about financially, personally, and professionally, um, then you're building your whole foundation to be able to keep going in this career because the disappointments come every year. You're going to have big disappointments, whether it's you made a film and it didn't go how you wanted it to go, or whether it's you thought you had this great opportunity to learn from a showrunner and you don't get it. Like those disappointments are going to come and they're going to be big and they're going to hurt, but keep driving for Postmates because you also need a little money to get by and you're, you know, she's waiting to see if she's in these big directing programs and, um, it, I guess it just provided me the balance that you need to, to sustainably keep going with this. Does that all track? No, that, yeah, it, it tracks great. And it's, it's so interesting because you probably felt pretty bad because of the, uh, the pressure we put on ourselves by comparison to other people who are doing well. And then mm-hmm. to hear that, Hey, we're all in the same struggle. Yeah, you know, it, it, it comforted you. And it's interesting because in, in our in our talks, speeches that we give, um, mentorships that, that I give and provide and counsel, um, a lot of times the answer to making sure that um, you do get those gigs and you do get those opportunities has to do with your daily brand building mm-hmm. and uh, the way you position yourself in the marketplace in a unique way. But the usual pushback to that is, is, well, how long is that going to take? <laughs> and yeah. it takes, and it takes as long as it takes is the answer. Right. Yeah. And the problem is money actually puts a lot of strain and pressure on our lives. Right. Like, well, okay. I it can't take a year. It has to take a week because I have to pay a bill next week. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's where that Postmates comes in. And, and I learned that very well, actually from Chris Wente. Um, mm-hmm. who had a bigger commitment to his craft than to any job he ever had, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if there was a new uh, gig coming up and he had to prepare for it and, and maybe set, uh, he had to be on set at 7 a.m., well, he'd just quit the job he had and go do um, limousine driving at night, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. like yep. so now I've got this night job. Will maintain, but the job is not the thing. It's it's the dream that's the thing. So I, yeah. I love that. But and and I'm curious because you did leave Nashville. Nashville is a lovely place, but it does have shortcomings in the film sort of ecosystem. So if there's one thing you can improve about film Nashville mm-hmm. and in that community, or, or you know, from a resource standpoint or an opportunity standpoint, you know, what would you change? What would you add? Or take away. Um, hmm. 
I'm curious if the answer to that question is more development. Um, ultimately, the reason that I moved to LA is because um, all of the development happens out here. Um, so meaning that anybody who's writing for a show, basically they're writing from LA. There's a little bit of writing in New York, but, um, all of the major development companies and agencies are in LA. Um, and I mean, the agencies have a ton of power. Um, so knowing those people is extremely important. Um, yep. And it's just, they're all in, in one town and it's this town, it's Los Angeles. I highly so, recommend the book, um, who is Michael Ovitz for okay. anybody in the film making, uh, our film business. Um, it will open your eyes to the power of agency. Anyway, mm-hmm. go ahead. Sorry to interject. Yeah. Um, so I think if there was more development happening in Nashville, um, <clears throat> then it would maybe, maybe that could grow everything in Nashville. Um, but it's tough because, you know, where do you then get the money from to do this development? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, Cause when you talk about development, what you're really talking about is the, what behind the, what is money, right? There just needs to be an infusion of cash into the community. Yes. Yeah. And it's, um, it's tough because that's, as much as I love supporting community, I personally, I have limitations and that's, and by that, I mean the, my imagination is the limit is that I, if I could imagine a plan that would make sense to convince, you know, whether it's a private equity fund or whether it's, um, a state fund or even a federal fund. I mean, if I had the imagination to dream it up, I would write the pitch deck and I would talk to people and say, this is what, this is what needs to happen in Nashville. And this is how we do it. But I have, for whatever reason, I have some sort of limit where maybe it's because, you know, if you haven't seen it done, you don't know how to do it. Um, and that's, that's part of why I wanted to move to LA to see more of, uh, the development pieces and how those pieces of the business are actually done. Yeah, uh, it's a great point. And, you know, to me, you talk about, you know, um, the development part of it. And, and in my experience, what what's the weakest um, professional uh, position in film in Nashville is, is producer. Uh, uh, um, there's a lot of great directors. There's a lot of great writers. Uh, you're always going to be able to find crew. Uh, yep. There's actually a lot of great cinematographers. And now I throw Micah Sims in there. He's not from here, but he comes here to shoot with Maki. So Micah yeah. is, is, is unbelievable. And there's Nathan Thompson and there's just, so there's all these people. There's uh, Drew Maynard and, and he does a little bit of both, but it's, you know, and, and on and on and on. I know I'm leaving people out, but Will mm-hmm. Holland. Um, Nick out. Yeah, a ton of great, but there's not a lot of great producers, and yeah. um, and I know that it, it's and I love the people we've worked with, but a really good producer makes sure that money keeps coming. Yes, and um, you know the producers are bad when you know the investors aren't taken care of. 
Yeah. Right. Like, and, and that is, that has been the hallmark of Nashville to me is that the producers, um, you know, are so, um, um, raw and green in terms of, you know, how do we contract? What should be in the contract? What shouldn't be in the contract? Mm-hmm. Um, with any entity, you know, how do we approach, uh, investors? How do we impro- approach our stars? How do we, what contract should we have with our, with our stars and our director? Um, mm-hmm. What is the marketing and branding plan? Like, what is our niche? How are we going to get people to watch this? What yeah. is the landscape of the movie business, the ever-changing movie business, right? So if I could change one thing, I think I would I would say, let's get some really great producers to produce here. And, yeah. and then I think you would solve your, your development problem. But, but st- staying on that theme, um, if you could provide, let's say, someone... Um, who's just coming out of their version of Chapman, right? <clears throat> if you could provide them with, with one piece of advice as they go into their career, what would it be? Let's see. I think let's talk about this. Let's talk about, um, I was looking through some, some things that have impacted me. Um, and I think one of the biggest things to remember every single day of your life is, um, and many people have said this in different ways, but the way that general Mattis says it is focus on brilliance in the basics. Hmm. Um, so every day when you're learning something new, when you're coming out of film school or, or when you're coming out of, you know, people come out of high school, you don't really need a proper film school these days. It does help. I will say that, but you don't need it. Um, but that being said, the trade-off is you do have to focus on brilliance in the basics. So um, really setting up time periods during your day where you turn off social media, you turn off external things that are influencing you, and you sit down to learn. Um, allow yourself to explore. Allow yourself to ask questions. Um when you are learning something, whether it's, if you're in production, learning to put up a C stand or, or learning what the, what the lenses are, um, focus on brilliance in the basics in a military sense. And that is everything from the old saying of, um, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. If you're late, Mm -hmm. don't come. Um, that's part of it. Uh, knowing exactly how to handle lenses Find somebody who has a po- find a DP or um, an AC or somebody who has a policy for handling their lenses. If you're going to go into the camera department and learn how you're going to do a, lan- a lens handoff every single time, so that you're not sloppy about it, so that you understand how to have a high regard for for gear and taking care of things. So there is a lot that's that's kind of related to that military mindset of like every day you make your bed because you accomplish something, and then. You know, same with when you're going to set every day, you bring your Leatherman because you're probably going to need it every day. Um, right. So making things, making things that are uh, standard for you, whether it's, you know, keeping your gear clean and knowing what you have or, um, or having, if you're, if you're more of a director or a writer, having set times where you're practicing that work every day or writing or studying something. Um, I think those would be my big things. And then the other, the other piece of advice is, um, 
don't worry. I think going back to what we spoke about, about, you know, if you think of three pillars of setting up your life financially, personally, and professionally, Mm -hmm. if you are able to establish that balance, so whether that means you're waiting tables or driving limousines or or driving Postmates or whatever you've got to do, um, keeping your life balanced so that you are able to not be worrying. Cause I think when you start worrying, you start limiting yourself creatively and, and that's not what you want. And in your twenties, when you're coming out of school, um, problems seem bigger than they are. I think at that age, um, you know, finding somewhere to live because you're doing it for the first time, that might seem like a bigger challenge than what it actually is. So, um, I think understanding that as you go through these challenges in in your twenties or as a young person in this industry, you'll find that, um, you may be worried about things a little, a little too much. So try to give yourself permission not to worry and just learn and experience and ask questions and, and be open to anybody who's, who's willing to teach you. Yeah. I think that's really, that's really uh, fantastic. And it, it kind of leans into my next question, which is if you, um, if you had a month, just one month to teach someone how to be a competent director, uh, what would be the first three things you would teach them? So oh, they're okay. start, starting from nothing, but, but had to be something by the end of that 30 days, be able to be competent on set. What would be those first three things you would teach them? Oh. I'm so happy about this question. I'm like so stoked right now. Um, but I'm actually going to steal. So I'm, I want to give a little plug to this, uh, this women's organization that I'm in called the Alliance of Women Directors. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we know them. Good, good. And, um, I'm just so excited that, um, I'm in their, I'm in their in-house shadowing program this year. Um, which shadowing is a huge step for directors. That's, that's a side note. We can talk about that more later. Um, but you know, to teach someone in a month, um, I'm going to steal from someone named James Bamford. He's a producing director, um, but also a director and he came from the stunt world and he's done a few workshops with us at the Alliance of Women Directors. And, um, to give you a picture about who this guy is, he was David Duchovny, David Duchovny's stunt man on, um, the X-Files. And then through doing stunt work, he moved into directing. So he's just been in the industry for a long time. And he's someone who I think you can find so much joy in spending any amount of time with. And he is also, whether he knows it or not, an incredible teacher. You know how some people, they just are teachers by nature. And so on top of being an accomplished stunt person and an accomplished director, he has it in him to be an incredible teacher. Um, so I've learned so much in just a couple of workshops from him. Um, then I'm going to steal from, from him, from the things that have mattered most to me that I, that I also happen to agree with about directing. Um, and I'll try to expand on, on what they mean to me and, and, and how I interpret them. Um, go for it. One, um, motivate the camera lens with action and always show your lead in jeopardy. So we'll, we'll kind of start backwards from that one. Show your lead in jeopardy. Um, from writing, you know, maybe one of the first things you ever learn if you're studying screenwriting is show, don't tell. Um, and no matter what changes in our industry, <laughs> that doesn't change. 
um, we need to see a character and their tension, whatever that tension is. If it's heartbreak, if it's fear, I mean, the whole, this whole industry is about emotion, right? Mm-hmm. So show your lead character in whatever jeopardy they're in. Um, motivate the camera lens with action. Um, I think, you know, I don't think every director does this, but for me, it's kind of the only way I want to do it. And it's because as a director, the way I approach things is through a character's point of view. And I always want that character's point of view and whatever they're feeling to be motivating my other choices, which means everything from production design and the, the lighting schematics and then particularly the, the camera lens and the action, it's all going to be motivated by a certain character's point of view and, and how I want the audience to interpret that point of view and all of those things play into it. So yeah, motivate the camera lens with action. Um, I think that's just a good standard to follow of like, well, what do I do with the camera right now when she's walking <laughs> this way? It's like, well, you're either going to follow her or you're going to be stagnant. But, um, however you want the audience to feel, that's going to influence your choices for, for what you do in that moment. So good. Yes. Um, every shot matters. If it doesn't matter, don't do it. I cannot agree more. One, we'll start with the practicals because I do have a pretty equal side of me. That's a producer. <laughs> so right, that's true. Any, any shot that I can cut off the shot list, is a good thing. Um, as long as you're staying true to the story. And like I said, as long as you're telling that story in the way that it needs to be told. But I think in, in what we do in storytelling, necessity is very important and understanding how to prioritize your necessities is very important. So when, when James Bamford said every shot matters, if it doesn't matter, don't do it. Um, that's it it just means a lot to me because the more, the more you can cut out the better. I mean, give yourself what you need, but it, it goes back to making sure that you're focused in pre-production and that you're focused and that you know what you have to do to tell your story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess as, as an addendum to that, I, sh- I should say, be prepared with options. You need a plan A, a plan B, a plan C and a plan D so that like, let's say a lens gets broken and you can't do that 28 millimeter shot that, that was your plan A. Well, when you're on set is not the time to work through that problem. Um, so, I mean, you don't have to plan for every scenario. So specifically, you don't need to go into every shot and be like, what will I do if my 28 goes down? (laughs) Knowing what your, what your alternatives are in general, you have to be able to do that because what you're, what you're doing on set is collecting all the information that you need to tell this story And the practical things can and will slow you down or limit you, but you don't want that to be a reason that you don't tell your story. You have to tell the story no matter what. And just for clarity for the audience, tell everybody what a 28 is. Um, It's just a wider lens um, that, that you would use. Maybe um, you're, you're, you're going to get to see a lot in focus instead of like something that has a little more fall off in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll, you'll have a little, a little less depth of field, which is nice. Um, especially if you're doing a scene that has like more action in it, um, you'll be able to see more of what's going on, I guess. Does that, does that help? <laughs> I it feel does. like I think that, I think that kind of nailed it. Yeah. yeah. Good. 
Um, so then uh, another piece would be. Um, so this would be. So this would be number three. Yeah. Third thing you would teach within these thirty days. Yeah. Um, let me pick here the best of the best. Um, this one from James, his direct quote is if the stunt team tells you to do another, do another because they see things you don't. And like we Uh, talked about, he comes from stunts and, you know, he knows that perspective. Um, but more so I think what he's saying or the way I interpret it and the way that I use it in my life is we are in the most collaborative art form and, no one person sees everything. So as a director, you're in charge of the vision and telling the story, but you have, you know, how many people around you who have a different perspective. So you've got to balance your vision with also taking advantage of the fact that you have people around you who can help you and trusting that you've hired the best people in your positions and you hired them for a reason. Um, so when, when the stunt team or when the cinematographer or when makeup, hair and makeup tells you, oh, we need to do another one, and especially if your actor tells you we need to do another one, do another one. Um, sometimes you might feel like, no, I got exactly what I want. But if, if another creator on your team is telling you they need another one, they're, they're telling you for a reason. So I think you, you do it. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me of being on set um, with adult interference and, and it's 40 degrees outside and we've got Ted Welch out there in a cut off t-shirt and some shorts because it's supposed to be the summer. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it's I think eight or nine o'clock at night and it's really cold and windy and um, him and George are out there. Uh, George Barron, are, are, mm-hmm. they did 17 takes of that, of that last scene um, just because he wanted to make sure that, cause that was sort of the payoff of the movie that he nailed it emotionally. So I'm, I'm totally with you there. Keep it rolling, mm-hmm. especially if uh, your talent says so. So that's awesome. Uh, thank you for that feedback. I think that first one's going to be either the first one or the last one, depending on the personality type of the person you're teaching would be the hardest to teach. Um, yeah. so yeah, thank you for that. It's awesome. Um, you've been so generous with your time and and so giving with with um, your story. I only have a few more questions. If that's if that's cool with you, yeah, absolutely. All right. So you did this this sort of groundbreaking short here uh, in Nashville, actually called Love Gwen. Uh, I thought it was the thing that sort of launched Allison Shrum into like um, the consciousness of the film community here. Um, yeah. And, and obviously one of our better actresses, actors, uh, Valerie Jane Parker was in it as well, but this Mm -hmm. was an audio auto semi auto biographical short. Uh, how, how did shooting this, writing this, putting it out there affect your family and and affect you? What was the impact? Thankfully, it only did good things for my family. And I'll give the abbreviated version for context for listeners. Um, My younger sister and eventually her twin struggled with addiction um, for many years. Um, During the opioid crisis, they were the classic story of 
started with painkillers and became addicted to heroin. And, um, my mom it was painful for the entire family for anyone who knows anything about addiction. Um, all of the worst stories are true. And I think they happen. It's more likely that all of the worst things will happen than, than that you would get lucky and they, and they don't. So for us, you know, everything other than death is what happened. Um, and what I saw from the outside looking in, because um, I did not live in Maryland where all this was happening as my sisters were growing up and living with my parents. What I saw on the outside looking in um, particularly was, was how it, the disease destroyed my mom as well. And to be clear, my mom is not an addict, but she was very codependent with my younger sister. Mm-hmm. One of the being that my younger sister started using when she was only 15 years old. So like my younger sister was still a child, literally, and her name is Julia. So, I mean, it, it makes sense that a mother would, would do everything she can to, you know, save her child from this quote unquote. But what I saw from the outside looking in was how badly it hurt my mother. Um, so I, I, when I wrote this story, which I wrote, um, as a piece to apply to the AFI directing workshop for women, um, you need to apply with a short film. And I didn't have anything that I was super proud of at that time because most of my career I I worked in documentary. Um, and uh, you know, you can't apply with a documentary. So (laughs) I, uh, I wanted to write something that I could write fast because I only had two months to do it. It was due in August and I was starting in June. Um, so I, I just thought like, I'm going to write this thing that I know really well. And that I think is a great story. And so love Gwen is based on the time when my mother, um, tried to save my younger sister from this motel where she ended up, where there was, um, human trafficking going on. And, um, it, you know, it, for me as a family member, it is a terrifying story um, when I first heard the story in August of 2016, which is when it happened, I got to a point maybe halfway through my mom's story, maybe three quarters of the way where it's like my brain shut off from processing it because you're so horrified for the people who you love most. So when I went to write this story, I had to talk about it again and I had to, um, find a way for my brain not to shut off and actually learn the story. And, uh, so my mom was huge in telling me about what actually happened. Um, and then we, I forget if I, when I spoke to Julia, but for me in this situation, it's actually harder to speak to Julia than my mom. Julia is the younger sister who's had the addiction problems because, you, you, you grow up with somebody and and you have this certain dynamic and then the whole thing is changed and there's still so much love underneath and so much of that sibling bond and that's there, but it's, um, it's like hard in this, in the respect that you have to talk about these very difficult things in order to maintain that love. But actually writing this film allowed me to do that. And there was a point where um, once we had cast Allison, 
she and I and Julia had um, a three-way phone call for about 45 minutes where Allison was able to ask questions and Julia explained everything. Um, and, and my family, I think in general, we're pretty good storytellers and we all have the same sense of humor. So thankfully Julia, I think, and the reason I say that is if you're a good storyteller, you have the ability to be objective about your actions. So because Julia does have that gift of objectivity, she was then able to communicate really well to Allison. Um, so if anything, there was a lot of healing that came from making this film. And, and the other, one of the things that I'm very proud of is that when people who have struggled with addiction see this film, they have told me that it is incredibly accurate. And they ask me if I'm an addict because they feel that right. the only way that I could have written this is if I've been through this myself. And I say I haven't, but it's about my family and what we've been through. And so I'm, I'm very proud that... Um, Allison, Valerie, everybody was able to execute this thing in a way that rings so true to anybody who has experience with this topic. I um, and by the way, thank you, thank you for that. It was very, you know, it's it's the thing I think that that stops a lot of artists, a lot of creatives is the the very best art is the true stuff, and you don't want anybody to see that because it might expose you and how you really feel about okay. yourself and about the people around you. And it might ruin relationships. So, you know, how does an artist overcome that fear of writing and releasing to the world and sharing with the world, the truth about their art and who they are and who their family is or whatever it may be that, that thing they're hiding. Ooh, what a good question. Um, for me personally, it comes down to family dynamics. And at the beginning of this, we talked about who I was as a kid um, making films and that I kept doing it and everyone in my family expected that I would. So in that respect, no one was thrown off that I wanted to make a film about this because it's just so characteristic of, of, of me as a, as, a, as a family member in this dynamic. Um, so I think that was definitely something that I had going for me. Um, and boy, I guess, um, yeah, maybe it goes to just understanding your relationships. And I come from a family where nothing is perfect and everything has been so far from perfect for so long that there's there's not much hiding anymore. Um, there's certainly, yeah. certainly anger, you know, there's certainly sadness. There's certainly, um, a lot of element of, um, how do you call wishing things had gone differently? <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. Cause I think like, think about it, like, like the juiciest books we buy are tell alls and, and things where people are actually telling the truth, but almost always that author has to face lawsuits or has to, will lose those relationships because they said the truth in a book. And I think as artists, we deal with that, whether it be in songwriting or in filmmaking yeah. or even in, in, in art and sculpture, like painting and sculpture. Yeah. Poetry. 
And I think, I don't know if this will help somebody, but there was a part of me where I felt um, almost like, I guess in a way, I didn't care if it made things worse in my family because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't believe that it could. Like, I, I don't think me making a movie can be worse than what we've been through. So right. I think it's good to keep in mind that if you are doing something that's based off of true life, everyone is still in their own story. Even if you write a story about it and show them their story, there's still going to be pieces that they don't think are true or that to them are not true. So things you didn't get right. Yeah. So that's a piece of human life where like if my dad and I were to talk about this or, or my sister or whoever, there's still going to be pieces of the emotions of it or blame or anything like that, where we will just at the end of the day have disagreements. But because I had changed enough in the real story, um, my family never had to have those discussions about the disagreements because there was enough like creative freedom to where we just didn't have to have those conversations. Yeah. And, and the best advice might just be to say, look, tell, tell the people, Hey, no matter what I write, I'm an artist and, and this is what I'm writing. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm shooting, but I love you. And, and, and nothing I ever create is going to, to change that. Um, um, okay. You've been awesome. You're incredible. (laughs) This has been so much fun and, and so revealing. Um, Tell everybody uh, where they can find you uh, on social media and on the internet and where they can see some of your work. Yeah. On social media, on Instagram, you can follow me. It's underscore Amanda P young. Um, I've got my website, which is where you can see the best slices of my work and where you can also learn who worked on these things with me, which for anybody in Nashville is very important because I've, I've listed out, um, every person who worked on each project, because I think it's so important to, to lift each other up and to acknowledge people for their work. Um, so my website is www.amanda-young.com. Um, and then, uh, let's see if you follow anything with Alliance of women directors, I, one, there's a lot of talent in there. Um, so that is a good organization to follow. And then um, hopefully they'll be sharing more about our shadowing program this year that I'm in. And then if you don't mind, I have a couple things that I wrote down to read that I would like to share with anybody who's um, getting started in this industry or at any point in this industry. They're, they're just good little. Um, Please. Yeah. Stuff. Go for it. So the proximity principle by Ken Coleman It is not about our industry, but it is primarily about networking. Um, and it's, it's the way in which to find your dream job, quote unquote, that's, that's what the whole book is about, but it's very applicable to what we do because so much of what he writes about is about networking. Um, and you know, everything that we do is about networking, um, on fire by John O'Leary. He was, uh, burned over 100% of his body. Um, as a young child and he lived and he writes a book about every way that that impacted him and his family. It's very touching. It's also a very quick read. 
Um, and he also provides touchstones of, of how to live life in any industry and making sure that every day counts and, and that you're serving others and, uh, and that you're approaching your life with a love for the world. Um, because I think that no matter if we're in COVID-19 or if we're focusing back on the regular things of our lives, I think approaching every day with a love for the whole world, um, is probably the best way to live. So I got a lot out of that book. Um, John Badham's on directing is what the book is called. If you're a director, I think that's, uh, basically required reading. And then back to Lajos Egri, the art of dramatic writing. Um, everything that you need to know about writing is in that book. And I, of all the writing books that I've had, that's the one that I still have over here on my shelf. And it's, uh, much more tattered and written in than any others. So I think that's, that's the big one for any writers out there. That is a fantastic resource list. And I love that you brought in some originals. Um, not that, not that the, the standbys and classics aren't great, but I'm just so glad you didn't say read bird by bird. Um, so, and, and bird by bird is great, but, it, but we get it so often. Right. And, um, so, so these are some new resources. Um, these are some new resources I should say for, um, our audience and for those out there who, who want to do film. Um, one last question. Um, you're stuck in a quarantine. It's a, it's a COVID-19 quarantine. Let's say for the rest of the month uh, or the next 30 days. And you can only watch one of these movies on repeat. Would it be Saving Private Ryan or Children of Men? Ooh, Saving Private Ryan. Tough call. That is good. So why why Saving Private Ryan over Children of Men? It is a tough call. Um, I think overall Saving Private Ryan has more going for it as a full film. Um, I really love Children of Men for the cinematography. Um, I love it for the dystopia that it created. And I, I saw it in theaters. So I can remember thinking, you know, how cool it was that they had imagined the world and, you know, 18 years would be this way. And, uh, they're, they're not too far off in children of men. <laughs> no, they're not. So I, I love it for all of those reasons, but I think to be able to sleep at night, I could sleep better with saving prior. <laughs> there's, there's a little more hope in that. And when Julianne Moore gets killed in Children of Men, I mean, what an amazing moment for writing and for um, and for storytelling. But it's very hard emotionally. <laughs> it is. It is. It's it's a tough one. It's like uh, I love Requiem for a Dream, but I don't recommend that you watch it more than once. Oh, I'm in the I'm in the same boat with you. And then like I've been uh, I've been actually watching old school documentaries, like the old school Talking Head documentaries with music from the '90s and mm-hmm. that stuff, because it's um, I found it's much less stressful. Like right now, I don't really want to see anything from our time period because. I'm like, no, I miss when we could go to restaurants. I miss when we could like hug our friends. So I've been watching stuff from different time periods because it helps me like not get so stressed about what's actually happening in our time period and how things are so different than what we see. Um, if you put on a movie that was made in the last year or so. 
Yeah. In that case, I'd say stay away from the documentary series Zeitgeist and stay away from the documentary series, The Century of the Self, Uh, (laughs) which I know I just planted those in your mind and now you have to go watch them. But (laughs) yeah. Wow. Wow. No, I have to go back to my PBS documentaries where they take five seconds on a landscape shot. Yeah. Oh, and you're, and you're so good at that. That is like your superpower. I was just looking at, you know, I've watched all your movies and all your shorts and all your music videos and all your stuff with, with Matt still, still well. And, um, I looked at all your stills and just the, what you do with shots, um, uh, over landscape and, and over nature, that really is something that sticks out as, oh, as a That's signature for you. You have some really beautiful stuff, uh, both cinematically and in stills, uh, when you're able to focus on little things in nature, even in your music videos where you're doing quick cuts and you're just showing wheat blowing in the wind and you just have a beautiful way of showing that. So, yeah. And you know what? We do have to give a shout out to Nathan Thompson on, on that one with the wheat blowing in the winds. Cause it was, uh, that shot blew me away for sure. And he was the cinematographer on that. Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And he's great. He's fantastic. Um, so it's, you know, it's a team thing, right? Uh, yeah. Maybe we'll have him on here soon. And and if you can recommend him, that'd be great. I'd love to talk to him yeah. uh, for, for this podcast and, and have him school everybody on cinematography and, and how to be a great DP. So, yeah. And that is uh, one thing that we should add for anybody who's found this podcast and doesn't know if you're in the Nashville area, the Nashville Filmmakers Guild is possibly one of the best resources. Um, and Nathan, Nathan Thompson is the, um, I forget if his title is executive director or president. I keep confusing it in my head, but, um, the things that that organization has done to, to build this community in connections with each other, but also in practical production knowledge have been, uh, very incredible. I love it. Amanda, thank you so much. This has been a long time coming. We finally got this out and, uh, and it's just been great and, and such a, a, a pleasure, um, learning from you and learning about you and, uh, for anyone that has questions or wants to learn more about Amanda, she, she mentioned her socials earlier, um, and you can find her there. Please contact her. Please hit her up. She'd probably be more than willing to share some insights with you. And then also just follow and support her work uh, so that we can keep getting this great work from her. And um, Amanda, I'll talk to you soon. Maybe uh, next time I'm in L.A., we can go to the alcove. Yes, man. Thank you so much for your kind words and the very good questions. It was, it was a very interesting conversation to be a part of. Well, uh, it's a blessing to be able to do it. And uh, it's a passion project for us. And uh, we love doing it. So thank you. And I hope to see you soon. And I hope to see more of your work really soon, too. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. All right. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. If you do that, the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. 
And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.